From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us on this Wednesday, November 1st. Busy show to get to. It is Wednesday. That means we will check in with Claire Newell. But we are starting the show talking about a deal that has been in the works for many, many years, but not much has happened. Talking about the Little Mountain sites in Vancouver. And we talked about this a bit last week as well, that the development firm behind the project says that without action from the city, without a vote in favor of, well, it was a request about development, about occupancy permits. Without that, the construction of Little Mountain will not be able to go ahead. And that was from Holborn Property, which is the developer. They were, There was nobody with Holborn at council today, but just a short time ago, council did approve that request. And one of the councillors who voted against this was Christine Boyle. Take a listen just to a little bit about what she said about why she was opposed to this. We and the public have no reason to trust Holborn here. 15 years ago, a thriving community of 224 social housing units, many families and seniors who ran around in the courtyard, who called this community home, uh, were relocated and the homes were torn down. Since then, the land has been largely empty. Holborn has seen a huge increase in property value uh, while doing almost nothing. Um, and now they're asking for handouts. This is a multinational company with billions of dollars in assets. And they're coming to us saying that they, that they uh, can't finance the condos they plan to build uh, and want to get off the hook on building the social housing as quickly. Um, I don't believe it. I think it is ludicrous. Quite frankly, I think it's infuriating. There have been too many delays, too many excuses. Enough is enough. uh, And I absolutely won't support us weakening this already bad deal uh, and and losing our ability to to hold Holborn accountable and to uh, try to rebuild that trust with the public that our residents expect of us. So that was Councillor Christine Boyle. The motion did end up passing, though. And joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Tom Davidoff, Director of the UBC Centre for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Tom, thank you so much. Great to have you on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I, I know uh, not going into all of the, the minutiae and the, the very... Uh, the, the fine points of this, but the bigger picture, the fact that this has been uh, happening for so long, as the councillor pointed out, there are 15 years so we've been looking at this site and wondering why things aren't happening. Does this seem like an odd development to, to you or, or how this is unfolding? Does it seem strange? Well, I guess the sort of big picture to me would be when you do a request for proposals, when you're going to dispose of a public asset and you're going to have a private sector developer come in, uh, probably best to judge which proposal is best on a single dimension, like how much are you going to give us? So if they had gone to the development community and said, you can build some private housing, we want you to give cash, and we're going to build some social housing – then you can easily measure uh, and enforce, you know, whoever gets the property is that who offers the most money and they don't get the property until they pay the money. 
that was not the way this deal was structured. The way this deal was structured is you pay money over time, you build some social housing units, then you build some uh, market housing units. So it was a fairly complicated deal. And I think when you have multiple dimensions on which you're judging competitors, you run the risk that people are going to bait and switch, as Holborn seems to have done, which is to say, hey, let's be aggressive and say we can pay a lot for the land and then go back later and plead poverty. And this seems like a strange deal as well. It was also, there was a a lot of secrecy. It was only more recently that some of the details about exactly what Holborn uh, was doing and and what they paid, I suppose more importantly, what they didn't pay when it comes to uh, the loans and the amount of money uh, that they were given. Does that seem strange too in that, I I think it goes back all the way to 2008, they agreed to pay more than $330 million uh, and they've paid very little of that. uh, and, And that only happened about 10 years ago. Yeah, I want to be a little bit circumspect in judging, you know, whether the privacy is unusual. I I, I haven't seen enough of these to make a definitive statement. Uh, But I've certainly seen deals where there's a clear statement of what the developer is on the hook for uh, when they are selected. And I don't know specifically why they weren't here. Uh, And when they're coming back, when a developer agrees to something, and the agreement here was that you will build social housing, yes, you will build then many units of market housing as well, but the deal was we want you, and the deal is that you build the social housing first. Does Does a developer... I mean, is that something that you can go back to? I mean, they have gone back here, but but is that that seems like a strange thing to do that you signed that deal. That was the deal you agreed to. And now now they appear to be going back on that. Again, I don't think the bait and switch is all that uncommon. Right. So the deal is the city is saying, hey, development community, you show us your best offer and we'll pick the best offer. So a great strategy in that setting, uh, if not a you know, it depends what you mean by the word great, <laughs> but a, a good strategy to get selected is to say, we'll pay you $8 zillion for the land uh, and we'll build 8,000 social housing units, get selected, and then say, oh, you know what? Uh, we, we really can't do it. Sorry, the, the economics don't work. Now, the contract should be written so that the city can say, well, okay, you can't live up to your end of the contract, you're out. Uh, but it certainly happens that cities are reluctant to eject Uh, the selected developer, even when they plead poverty after having sort of overestimated what they could do in the interest of being selected. Does the timing seem seems, uh, strange as well in that I I get that the developer is saying we can't afford this, we need this relaxed so we can afford it, but this is also a a developer that has a lot of properties in Vancouver, uh, international properties. Uh, they've, They've been very active in times of very low interest rates. Does it does it does it make sense that the developer is now coming to council and basically saying we have no money? You know, I don't know how overextended they are in terms of, you know, uh, having recently acquired properties uh, based on prices that made sense when interest rates are lower. I, I, I just don't know what their position is. Obviously, this is a lousy time <laughs> to be in the have recently bought uh, real estate sector, and it's a not, not a great time to start projects because borrowing costs are very high, and the finished product isn't worth as much because of the higher interest rates. 
bigger picture then, does this point to a need maybe uh, that, that there needs to be more checks and balances in place that when developers sign on and part of a deal is to provide social housing, to provide uh, different forms of housing, there's a better way to hold them to that? Yes. Again, it, it, my preference would be as often as possible, just get money from the developer and use the money to do public uh, you know, works like building social housing separately, because then you're picking a developer on a really simple criteria, which is how much money am I getting? Once you get into we're going to build social housing and we're going to build performance space for the community, you know, uh, then you pick the winner for a lot of different reasons. But if you're going to do this multidimensional contracting, then yes, you're 100% correct. I think uh, you've got to give uh, the city the right to eject somebody who's not performing in a reasonable amount of time. And I suppose what makes this a bit more complicated, too, is that we're not only dealing with a city and a developer. We're also dealing with the provincial government that was involved in the original deal. We're dealing with BC Housing, that arm of the provincial government. There are a lot of different entities involved in this. Yep. Yep, agree. So, you know, who's I, I think people blame Rich Coleman for this. You know, I, I, I don't know who, who did it. And, you know, one thing I have to say is it's very easy in hindsight to point a finger and say you did a lousy deal. Uh, it's possible back when the deal was signed, it, it made sense and it seemed reasonable that Holborn would perform. I, 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 I want to be a little leery about blaming any individuals or groups. Sure. And, and again, this has been going on for so many years. There are so many people that have been uh, involved in this. I, I, I guess one of the reasons, too, that, that the councillors that voted in favour of this said, well, maybe this is the only hope, that this is what's going to lead to more social housing. And I suppose, is that what we're, 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 we're hoping for, that, that even if this doesn't seem like it should have been, it was necessary, maybe this is the only way we get that social housing bill? Well, as my countryman Donald Rumsfeld said, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you may wish you had. And so, yes, you know, the, the uh, situation on the ground is what it is today. Uh, I, you know, whether uh, the city could have held tough and said, no, we believe Holborn can perform and we're going to hold them to it. And we think the incentive to build the market units is enough to trigger the social housing uh, or whether, no, you know, they really never would have built. Because after all, the worst outcome is the outcome we've had that nothing gets built for an extended period of time. And if the contract is bad enough uh, and there's no right to force uh, Holborn to build anything quickly, uh, then getting something built is better than getting nothing built. And you just you know behave as toughly as you can under those circumstances. And that comes down to really getting into the weeds of uh, what, what's required and whether it's feasible for Holborn to execute or not. All right. Tom Davidoff, thank you so much for uh, joining us and for talking more about this today. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Wednesday afternoon, so that means it is time for us to check in with Claire Newell. Good afternoon to you. Hi there, Jill. You know, I wanted to start with something that I get asked. I I bet you I get asked 10 times a week. <laughs> so I'm going to share. And, and I always give my own personal advice but today um there came out this uh it, this kind of survey that was done it was 82,000 people and it was done by rewardscanada.ca and it was uh the 2023 Canada's Choice Awards and they really looked at like top airline loyalty programs cuz i often like what is it like and i don't want to give my my personal but if if it's one on one with someone i do 
However, over the radio, I'm going to tell you that my personal is exactly the same as what uh, what won. So um, it is Aeroplan that nice. won um, top airline loyalty program. But the other thing I get asked about is which is the best credit card for points. And the credit card that won for top overall travel rewards credit card was TD Aeroplan Visa Infinite Card which I personally use. So anyway, it's just not me. 82,000 people voted. Um, and it was interesting because this year, almost four times the number of votes than they had in 2022. So in my opinion, these kind of loyalty programs, they matter. They matter even more during, um, you know, when things are so expensive and people are using the rewards and they want those free flights. So anyway, it's just something to note. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention that just came down, uh, you may have heard of it in the news, just kind of came end of day yesterday, but WestJet is implementing changes to his, it, uh, it, its existing bag and seat selection fees. I just want to make sure people are aware of this. I'm probably guessing that you've been reporting on this, Jill. I think we have been, yes, but always okay. good to have a reminder. Yeah. So this will all take effect November the 7th. So keep in mind, if you bought your ticket, up to and including November the 6th. This will not apply to you, but starting November 7th, first, second, and excess bags, if you pay for them at the airport with an airport agent, it's going to be an additional $10. And also beginning, beginning that same day, guests that have Econo or Econo Flex fares will be required to pay a fee for seat selection during check-in if they choose a preferred or an emergency exit row seat. There's going to be no changes to standard seats, which are still available to Econo and Econoflex guests for no charge at check-in. And there are no updates to basic fares. But what I am suggesting is that if you want to avoid these or save in advance, just prepay for your check baggage and pre-select seats at the time that you make your booking. It will help you save some money in advance. All right. That is, uh, again, good to know. So that all changes not too, too far away on November yeah. 7th. Uh, That's right. Yes. All right. Lots happening in the travel world. Uh, there's also an update when it comes to passenger complaints. Oh, yeah. We know that there's like all this humongo backlog with the Canadian transportation Canadian Transportation Agency, CTA. That's what I normally call them. So <laughs> saying it full out is a little tongue twister for me. Um, but they currently have about 61,000 cases. The backlog is insane. They're saying it's like 18 months or something to be able to get some sort of resolution. And so Air Canada is putting in their own cash or voucher offer to settle some cases that are stuck in that huge mountain of complaints. So people will get the option to that. If you decline your offer, you can continue on with the CTA situation, which helps kind of resolve the disputes between airlines and passengers. But a lot of people I've seen are going to take this Air Canada, the, the, the offers that they're getting, and get it dealt with sooner rather than later. So if you have a complaint out there, watch for that coming to you. It'll likely come via an email, um, and it could help speed up the process. So hopefully more airlines will start doing this themselves to just try and clear it. Like 61,000 hmm. cases, that's insane. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of complaints. Yeah. And uh, yeah, interesting. Well, at least there's another option. And like you said, people can decline the offer or uh, take them up on it if they want to deal with it or deal with it and get, and get it uh, over and done with. So I yeah. guess at least there's the option. Yeah, exactly. Should we talk about a little bit about WestJet? A lot of people yes. kind of um, going, oh my goodness, what? You're stuffing more uh, more seats into the cabins. Well, they are. They are going to densify the cabins. It won't actually, um, you're not going to really feel it. 
the the way that they're doing it is that the seven three seven eight hundreds and the max eights. This will include WestJet, Sunwing, and Swoop. So just October 30th was the last day that Swoop will be flying. It's now going to be integrated into the WestJet brand. We've talked about that a lot. But they're going to rework the 180 seats, and they're going to add six seats. Um, so what, what, this, what they're doing by this, Jill, is they're trying to make it so that if you love that ultra-low-cost um, fare with Swoop, or you love the premium, like the premium cabins and the larger, the, you know, the, the extra space. If you buy uh, a little bit more than the standard seat, you'll have that choice on every single aircraft. Hmm. Um, I feel like it's good news. It just allows the, you, you to make the choice of what type of fare you want to pay for. And I think that more seats on an aircraft, and it's not much. I mean, it's six on those uh, 737s, but... Um, we need more seats. These planes are full. Like when I'm traveling, it's all the time I'm seeing super, super, super uh, full flights. What they're going to be doing on the Max 10. So there are 70 of these on order over the next five years. They're going to be adding 13 seats. So they'll now be 212. It'll be a little more dense in the back, but still all the other types of seats that you're used to seeing with the, the more space in the premium. Kind of, you, you're going to get what you pay for is really. That's not such a bad thing. No, not such a bad thing. But I know for some people, they're like, what? What's going to happen? I think that people are thinking there's going to be like 20 extra seats on the, the planes. There's not. You really won't notice it. They're keeping um, kind of true to what they've, they've been, which is um, those good standard seats. Um, both WestJet and Air Canada have them now. All right. So that's uh, the update with the seating and what's happening with that. Uh, this is something we talked about on the show, I think it was yesterday. The days are all blending together. But I love this idea, the Paper Planes Cafe. Oh, I know. Everyone has to check this out the next time you're going through YVR. So for those who haven't heard about this, YVR and the Pacific Autism Family Network have unveiled this inclusive and accessible coffee bar. It really is the first of its kind at an airport in Canada. So you're looking for Paper Planes Cafe. It opened October 31st, and it's got staff of different abilities from the neurodiverse community. And they're going to be preparing and serving all sorts of things like coffee and hot drinks and quick snacks. And I think it's such a great opportunity for both YVR um, and this community. So please look out for them and go and support Paper Plains Cafe. Yes, absolutely. That's uh, on the domestic arrivals, I believe, if I'm remembering yes. that correctly. You yes. are, you are. <laughs> all right, people can go check that out. Let's get to some new flights. You have a lot of new flights, which is great. Yeah, I know. I, I'm going to try and kind of scale this down because there's so many. What I want to do is actually touch base on the ones that actually started to fly over the past few days. It's been really interesting to watch. So there was um, quite a fanfare about the Air Canada first nonstop Vancouver-Dubai route, which started on October 28th. So just this past Saturday, that's going to operate on their gorgeous Boeing 787 Dreamliner aircraft and fly four times a week. This is great because it's the first from Western Canada. Um, and I think it'll make it just a lot more affordable and way easier to get to Dubai. I would way rather do a nonstop flight. Um, Canada Jetlines had its inaugural flight on October 30th between Toronto Pearson and Orlando, um, flying four times a week. And Porter Airlines on, um, oh, actually just today, November 1st, is launching their daily round trip service between Toronto and Tampa. And that's going to be daily. So hmm. lots of new flights. We're also seeing a lot of airlines um, start to announce stuff coming up. And one of them that I love is 
um, that we're going to start to see a little bit more expansion into um, Morocco, which, as you know, had that big earthquake, but people are still flocking there. So um, having more airlines, it's typically been Air Canada to Casablanca from Montreal. Now Air Transat has announced that they're going to offer nonstop flights between Montreal and Marrakesh, which is my favorite. Mm. I love that city. It's That's great. not going to happen until June of 2024, but it's... Um, going to be great because it's going to be the only airline offering North American flights nonstop to Marrakesh. So um, it's going to be twice a week, uh, June to October, and then once a week, November to April. But you can connect to it easily on a, you know, Vancouver to Montreal and then continue on to Marrakesh, which will make it the easiest route to get there. And one other one I was quickly I wanted to ask you about because I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought there was this big of a demand, but New York Anchorage. Okay, yes. So Alaska Airlines is going to fly from New York to Anchorage, Alaska, and that's going to start in um, the summer of next year. It's going to be daily and going to go from June 13th to August 19th. So guessing by those dates, you know what that's connecting to. It's all those Alaska cruises. Mm. There's a ton of them that go one way. So we often do the ones where it's so easy to walk on, walk off, round trip Vancouver um, when I mention them as deals uh, with you, but there's a lot that do one way. So they sail from Vancouver up to Anchorage or Anchorage back down to Vancouver. They also do it to and from uh, from Seattle. So there is a ton of demand. This is a destination that people come from all over the world to, and you can see just how busy this is going to be now that um, Alaska is going to offer this. So they're not the only airline. Uh, they also have uh, a United flight that goes between Newark so Newark, New Jersey, one of the major airports in the New York area to Anchorage as well. So it's, you know, it's not the only airline doing this. There's lots and lots of people from all over want to, want to see Alaska. All right. Uh, sounds end. It's a little bit easier now as well. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to the deals. What do you have for us today? Okay. Well, when I'm not, I didn't even send you ahead of time. It just came across my desk and I loved it. It's a Thailand island hopping and you do Koh Samui, Koh Tao and Koh Phang, Phangan. So it's um, January 11th through until October 31st of next year, but it's airfare. Sorry, no, sorry, no airfare. Seven nights in a four-star um, in each property, each property you'll be staying. So three different islands. Ten meals are included, sightseeing and transfers, 1099 tax included. Hmm. So that's a really cool getaway. Um, I also love this deal to Vegas. I have shared it before a couple weeks ago, but it's still available. January 14th through until February 4th, air and seven nights at a four-star hotel. For those who know it, it's Paris, right smack dab in the middle of the Strip, $199. The taxes are more. That means you know it's a good deal because the taxes don't change. Two oh three for tax, but still a heck of a deal. And I think you too is even playing in that window for those who you know are lucky enough to be going to the Sphere to see that. Um, and last but not least, how about Los Cabos, Mexico? Pretty soon, December the 7th. 10th or 11th this has to be booked by november the 10th which is next friday but it's a great deal air and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort 749 the taxes of 626 that uh, sounds pretty tempting now with the weather changing <laughs> as well i know <laughs> claire always great to chat with you thank you so much and we will talk to you again soon sounds good talk to you next week jill
we tend to talk a lot about people coming to Canada, and we know the federal government has a goal, a very ambitious goal when it comes to the number of immigrants coming to Canada every year. But what about the number of people who leave? Well, some new numbers show there has been a rather large spike in the number of immigrants who are leaving the country. And joining me to talk more about this is Daniel Bernhard, Chief Executive with the Institute for Canadian Citizenship. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, this, uh, I find th- these numbers very interesting, and it was your institute that put these numbers out and, uh, and really looked at this. So what did you find then about uh, people who are, have come to Canada, immigrants who are then leaving? I think the first thing we found before we even commissioned the study was the sad fact that no one had bothered to look at this. Mm. <laughs> uh, that, I think, says a lot about Canada and our view of ourselves and who immigrants are. We couldn't even countenance the possibility that people would want to leave. So that's the first thing. Once we finally crunched the numbers, what we found were three things. One, onward migration, that's the term the expert use, immigrants who come and then leave. Onward migration has been creeping up slowly for decades, but gone seemingly unnoticed. Two, as you mentioned in the in the intro, in the most recent years that we have data for, so 2017, 18, 19, there have been huge spikes, 30, 40% above the average. And that's before the pandemic, that's before supply crunch, that's before interest rate um, uh, interest rates gone up. So we think that the real rate that's happening right now is actually probably much, much higher than that. And third, we found that the early years are really decisive. There's this period between years three and eight after arrival when the risk of leaving is highest. And so we think that programs like our Canoe Access Pass, which gives a quarter million immigrants amazing experiences in Canada's culture and nature sector for free, uh, that these positive experiences of Canada are really decisive in these important years. If Canada's not delivering a good experience, people have options. And increasingly, they're exercising those options to the detriment of the entire country that really would depend on their contributions for our shared success. Hmm. And did the study or did you look at it and find out when you talk about onward migration, the reasons why people and and maybe why somebody would, would decide, mm, yeah, this, this Canada's just not for me? So that's one of the questions, unfortunately, that we're not able to answer that, but that we're looking to answer next. Our early research in this um, area shows a few things that are really what you would expect. People not able to find employment that matches their skills and experience. You know, this is the proverbial doctor working as a pharmacy tech, for example. Uh, We have a lot of those. But also social experiences, people worried that their children aren't having good experiences, difficulties accessing health care, affordability of housing and other basic needs. So it's all the stuff that you and I would consider when we decide whether or not um, we're enjoying our life. The only difference is, is that many immigrants to Canada, unless they're refugees, which are relatively few, have another place to go. They have to have a home country to return to. Many have third countries to go to. And so people are coming to Canada and saying, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. That's a pretty damning reflection, I think, on the state of our society. But also, this is not just about newcomers' quality of life. This is about our entire society's quality of life. People, we are selecting people with very, very specific talents. They are, in many cases, from the top of their home country society. And if they're not here to contribute our shortages in healthcare, construction labor force, all this kind of stuff, early childhood educators, 
these shortages are only going to get worse and all of Canada is going to suffer as a result. This isn't just a problem for immigrants, it's a problem for everyone. And you mentioned uh, the issues with something like skills and transferring skills. And I know the, the province of British Columbia has come out saying they're really going to try and tackle that. Uh, and they want to make it so people aren't uh, stuck with red tape and, and are able to transfer their skills to work in, in the province, to work in the country. Uh, are there other countries, though, then would it appear that, that if that is one of the main reasons that other countries are, are doing a better job and that's why they would be more attractive? Uh, yeah, there are con- other countries that are doing a better job, and of course they have these same qualifications in their home country. So people are looking for a leg up for a better life, but not at all costs. I think that the other thing is it's not just streamlining credentials. I think there's a real mind shift that needs to happen here. We are still in large part thinking of immigrants as they were 50 years ago when my parents arrived, that they spoke very little English, they had very little education, and so they had little expectations and, you know, work hard, put your head down, all that, all that stereotypical stuff. We have not, I believe, yet recognized that people actually have a lot to contribute here. And God forbid that there are people from other countries who might actually know how to do things we don't know how to do, <laughs> like provide health care at equal quality for lower costs or build housing and transit faster. I think a bit of humility is required and for Canada to open itself to what the world can offer and recognize that immigrants aren't just destitute people who we're opening the doors to. Immigration is not about compassion. I mean, it is in some respects, but really we need to get our heads around this. Immigration is about ambition. It's about what we could be as a country, welcoming people to be on our team who have these skills from around the world. If we can do that, we'll be all right. But if we waste that welcome, if we have this opening disposition and people decide not to stay, uh, that's a real that's a real shame. We've got a head start, but we can't squander it. Well, is it a, a question, too, of, and you kind of touched on this, that things have changed a bit and that I remember talking to someone years ago about a family immigrating and she was saying it's not for the parents. The parents are doing this so their children will have a much better life and this is what they are going to sacrifice so their kids can have this better life. Whereas is it now, it's not so much that. I mean, maybe there is still some of that, but it's very much a better life for everybody and maybe we're a little bit arrogant in Canada to just assume this is what people would want. The economies in some of the countries which are supplying the majority of our immigrants are booming. I mean, we've had people on our staff who've left Canada to go back to India for healthcare reasons. Um, now, there are 1.3 billion-ish people in India. 1.2 billion of them would sacrifice a relative and an organ or whatever to access healthcare like we have. Unfortunately, we're recruiting immigrants from the 100 million who have really great private care, <laughs> uh, who come from the top of unequal societies. So, yeah, the situation's changing a lot, and Canada needs to recognize that we can learn from people. Immigrants want to contribute, just like you want to contribute, just like I want to contribute, to do something meaningful and positive with your life and to feel a sense of community and purpose behind it. That's what everybody wants. If we continue to talk to people like they all come from refugee camps, that's, you know, people are going to feel really disrespected. That's how we're going to treat them in the labor market, and we're all going to lose. There are people who come from refugee camps. I'm happy that Canada is open for them, but we need to recognize that's not the common experience. If we don't realize that people have things to teach us and to contribute, then, of course, we're not going to be able to benefit from that. And that's what I worry these numbers show. It's a worrisome trend. I'm hoping, however, that by shining a light on it, Canadians can recognize this and start to pay attention to retention. I'll just add just one last point. I know it's a long answer, but, you know, there are currently zero people at the federal immigration ministry whose job is retention. 
It's not a thing. It doesn't exist. That's why nobody's looked at this. Um, we need to get our heads around this. And I think if we do, we've got a lot of assets and we've got a welcoming disposition. Canadians want to be welcoming. We just need to organize ourselves better. Well, it's a very interesting study and, uh, and and glad that somebody now is paying attention and looking at those numbers. So we'll leave it there. But Daniel, thank you so much for making yourself available to come on the show and talk about this today. It's my pleasure. I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.